I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Jane Seymour died in October 1537. And the tradition around her death is sort of this thing about Henry taking a mourning period um, because he didn't remarry for another year and a half, two years after Jane died. But actually, as we'll see on today's episode, it was less because he was observing a period of mourning and more because his demands for a new wife were so high that that's how long it took them to find somebody who met all of his criteria. I'd expect nothing less. I think the fact he got married three times so quickly is the more shocking thing. I have always found this period of his history very fascinating because it's the only real time that he doesn't have, like, another wife on deck. Um, You know, he's not getting rid of one to marry someone else, or he doesn't have ideas of who he wants to marry based on who he's seen at court. He is going blind into this whole process. And though he has some criteria, as we'll see, finding somebody who meets all the criteria, but then also actually wants to marry Henry and become the Queen of England, is very hard. And I that's th- why it took so long. That's the kicker, though, isn't it? Because it's not just him involved. I think if he, if it was just Henry making the decision, there would have been probably closer to seven or eight wives, if we're being honest. Uh, we go through a couple of candidates before we finally settle on the one who we know ends up becoming the fourth wife of Henry, who is Anne of Cleves. So in this episode, we're going to go through that period because it is an interesting time to see what Henry was looking for in a wife, like what are his personal preferences in a bride, but then also talk about how Anne fits into all of that and the negotiations that took place to actually get her onto the English throne. So before we start talking about all of the negotiations and what was going on with the women, I want to take a moment to talk about Henry, which I know was not what we're supposed to do on this show, but just to give you an idea of what was going on right now. In 1537, Henry was 47 years old, and he's starting to become the Henry VIII that you picture when you close your eyes and think of Henry VIII. Um, he's, I mean, he was always tall, but now he's kind of filling out. Um, he's gaining weight because of his injury. He's not as uh, physically mobile anymore. So he's becoming just this really physically larger than life person. He's also, uh, the style is becoming more about like wearing big bulky padded clothing. So like seeing this guy must have just been like, wow, like he's just, he's huge in more ways than one. You uh, couple that with the idea that because of this injury on his leg, amongst other things, he's not in great health and he's in pain a lot more than he used to be. And that affects his mood. Um, This is when we start to see the mood swings happening more often, or rather, not maybe not mood swings as much as he finds it harder to control his temper than he used to. So this is the guy who's now putting himself onto the marriage market and trying to convince all of these women to not only want to be the Queen of England, but his wife. It's not an easy sell, I'll be honest with you. Not like, no. When Catherine about... 
he's he's um, physically intimidating. I think is fair to say. And then add that to his well, I mean his mood swings, his temper, his temper, but also his his history. Um, you know, he's he's looking for wife number four after two of them were disposed with. So like not that appealing. <laughs> no, and I mean, even by early modern standards, despite all of these things, all of these handicaps um, that are preventing him from maybe succeeding well on the marriage market, he has very, very high standards for what he's looking for. In a previous episode, we talked about all of the different you know, boxes you have to check as a woman to be a successful queen and maybe some things that will help you have a better image as a queen you know like Catherine of Aragon for instance was a foreign princess so people really liked that about her you know she was royal by birth Henry wasn't as concerned about that as much as he was concerned about some other things so practically one of the things he was actually really interested in was a younger woman who was fertile because even though Prince Edward was now born and he had an heir so if we can have more children and reserve heirs, that would be great. And the way to do that is by getting somebody who's either been proven fertile or is young enough to have many childbearing years ahead of her. It would be great if she had really good lineage or ties, because if you're going to go shop around Europe, you might as well make it a good alliance. But Henry was actually more interested in looks and personality than he was in any of that. Um, and like we said, you know, he doesn't have much to work with in terms of his personality and his history. So <laughs> it's amazing that he has such high standards for women. Amazing in like a not shocking way. But um, he did say that he was looking for somebody who was fair. He wanted somebody who was buxom um, and a little bit rounder than the average English woman, apparently, because he said, quote, I am big in person and have need of a big wife. I think that's brilliant. I did. <laughs> I guess he wanted, he wanted somebody to compliment him that way. <laughs> but then also in terms of personality, he was looking for somebody kind of more like an Anne Boleyn in how cultured she was. He wants somebody who can speak multiple languages, who is interested in theology and music, who is a good dancer, somebody who is very cultured and used to spending time in court. Because he loves all of that stuff, and it's something that they can connect over. I just think the irony in this is is quite profound in very two two very big ways. Like you were just saying, he wanted someone akin to Anne. Maybe if we hadn't have chopped her head off, we wouldn't be in this predicament trying to find a personality to match hers. I'm just as a speculation. I'm not sure, but I. <laughs> but but. Oh. And, though, and though cultured, and I mean, besides the physical requirements that she apparently didn't meet, Anne had a more rebellious, outspoken spirit. Yes. And Henry clearly wanted somebody who was more demure and subservient. Not demure, like in a quiet, won't talk to you kind of way, but in like a, I'll do whatever you say kind of way. It's willing to have a lively conversation, but also willing to be obedient exactly um so that's where the you know the attraction of somebody like jane seymour uh somebody who whether by design or that was her actual personality you know deferred to henry more than not 
So that was also one of the, the big things he was looking for. But I think number one is really for Henry that he wanted them to be good to look at and fun to talk to. Whereas somebody like a Thomas Cromwell, who's negotiating this on the sort of more political side is like, who are they related to? What's their religion? What can they bring to the table? Is she going to give you an heir so that England doesn't collapse in civil war? That's the stuff that he's caring about. And Henry's over here like, you know, do you think she reads French poetry? <laughs> uh, Jane died in October. There is evidence that by Easter the next year, 1538, Henry was actively considering um, new wives. He most wanted a French wife. He really wanted to solidify ties between him and uh, King Francois of France. But also I think that something about the French culture, again, you know, think of like Anne Boleyn's personality, something about that culture really appealed to him. And so he really was determined that he would want a French bride. Not Cromwell's first choice, but he took his credit, um, went with it for a little while and tried to find somebody who would be pleasing to Henry, who would also have a political advantage. Henry, though, was really picky to the point where he talked to the French ambassador about, like, you know, hey, you know French women. Is there anyone that you would recommend who, you know, might be available for me to marry? And Henry said that rather than just hear about them, he would actually like to go see them. So could maybe the king or the ambassador bring candidates to Calais so that Henry can go over there and look at them and talk to them and determine which one he likes best. And the French ambassador, like, I cannot believe that he said this to a king, said, <laughs> perhaps, sire, you would like to try them one after the other and keep the one you found the most agreeable. <laughs> In my head, it's the most ridiculous thing on both parts because he's looking like he's trying to choose a wife. Like you'd pick a horse. It's um, like like a beauty pageant or something. <laughs> yeah. It's the most and, ridiculous thing. It, well, but, yeah, and especially because you're talking about noble women. Like one yeah. of the women that he was considering that he wanted to be brought to Calais was Francois's daughter, like the, a princess of France. And Francois was like no, you either want to marry my daughter or you do not. There is no trial period here. <laughs> what? It, again, it's quite interesting though, isn't it? Because we were talking about this beforehand, that he was adamant on seeing them and adamant on kind of having a viewing part. Can you call it a viewing party? That feels icky, but you know what I mean. Uh, uh, of these women. And yet, um, you, you made an interesting point about his brother. Arthur having to marry Catherine of Aragon without ever seeing her and then her coming to England draped so like no one could see her face until they got married. Yeah, it's the accepted way of things that I mean, it's not like we're advocating for one way or the other because they're both kind of gross, but it's the way of established way of things that you send away for a bride and like Catherine of Aragon for example was going to be great because her lineage and her status on the European hierarchy was awesome for England. So no matter what she looked like, she was going to be an asset and Arthur would be better off marrying her. And somehow that doesn't click for Henry, that it's not actually about him and what he wants as much as it's about 
what is best for England's politics and what will make the best, most lasting connection. So you can just imagine Cromwell, who is very much of that mindset, going crazy. But then you can also imagine, you know, the actual embarrassment and outrage of somebody like King Francois, who is used to this way of, you know, you want a woman for her position and her lineage. And then you say, hey, but also can we parade her to see if she competes with this lesser noble woman in terms of her beauty? That's really insulting. It's very henry and equally very bizarre. And like we've been saying, in addition to this, he also had to deal with the fact that his reputation amongst the, all, all the women he was going through was not fantastic. And this is exemplified by the two women he did end up proposing to in all of this. So the first one was his preferred French bride, who was uh, Marie of Guise. She was the widowed wife of a duke. And I say widowed because it's very important to Henry that she already has two sons. So she is proven fertile, but also that she can make boys, which is very attractive right now. She's only 22 years old, too, so she has plenty more time to give Henry the children that he wants so badly. And then physically, she does meet a lot of his requirements. She is fair. She is buxom. She is cultured, you know, she likes music and uh, reading and poetry and all of that. She's French. She is French. This is good. This is good. (laughs) We like this. So Henry decides that he wants to make his intentions known, but before he can actually propose, I don't know how, but Marie got wind of his interest and his, like, you know, serious interest She had another suitor who was the King of Scotland at the time, James V, and she very quickly proceeded with that match and, you know, got herself betrothed to James before Henry could even pounce. (laughs) So Henry now is dealing with the embarrassment of having been outdone by his own nephew because James was his nephew, but through his sister. Um, And of course, if you think that this name sounds familiar, this is the future mother of Mary, Queen of Scots. So that's where this all kind of connects. The other big candidate, once we have abandoned the France idea, uh, because no woman in France will have him, slash Francois is really pissed off at this point. They start to shop around for some other people in Europe who are available. And right now, one of the most eligible bachelorettes in Europe is Christina of Denmark, the daughter of the King of Denmark, who is the recently widowed Duchess of Milan. She's really, really notoriously beautiful. She's 16 years old, and she's now staying at the court of her aunt in modern-day Belgium. So she's, like, nice and close for ambassadors to go over there and take a look at her. And I think we've mentioned Christina before because she's (laughs) had a very infamous rejection of of henry that is just it's beautiful it's fantastic and especially like you said like she's 16 in march of 1538 the court painter hans holbein is sent over to paint christina because henry is still out of it that he needs to kind of like have a preview before he can agree to any match and though everyone is telling him beautiful christina is he's like "I, i need to see for myself And not surprisingly, the portrait that Holbein paints is absolutely gorgeous. It's in the National Gallery in London today. If anyone wants to go see it, it is absolutely beautiful, full-length portrait of Christina. And Henry was quite taken 
buy it from first sight and said, you know what? Yep, this is my wife. Let's go make all the necessary arrangements. So he sends his ambassadors back over to make the offer. And Christina says no. And her reasons are many. The big two are one, that her actually her great aunt was Catherine of Aragon. So she was basically saying, like, I don't want to be as mistreated as my aunt was, because we all remember that. Which is fair enough. I think, you know, if anything else, that's a very, very valid point. Yeah, I think so, too. And I can imagine Henry being like, oh, damn, that came back to bite me in the ass. (laughs) But then also, she just said that his reputation was such that she would never feel completely comfortable being his wife. And the reason that she gives is, of course, the famous quote about if she had a head to spare, that she she would gladly put it at the King of England's disposal. But also there's another quote, which I love just as much, where she tells the ambassador that I mind not to fix my heart that way. (laughs) (laughs) I think one thing that we should make clear, though, is that both of these two women, both uh, Marie of Guise and Christine of Denmark, are widows. So they have a little bit more agency in making decisions for themselves than somebody who is still kind of ruled over by their parents. Yeah. So Christina has that freedom to say no. And though ultimately she was going to do what she was told by the higher ups in the family, like they were advising her, she does have the ultimate power to say, my heart's not feeling it. (laughs) Which is such a contrast to somebody like Anne of Cleves, as we'll see in a bit, but also um, somebody really young like Catherine Howard, who is still kind of being ruled over by her family's interests rather than her own. At no point, it just tickles me because I'm just like, at no point did you stop to think you're going to keep butting your head against a wall. Nobody's going to want you. You've done a lot of terrible things by this point. You've divorced one woman very, very, very publicly, probably one of, from one of the most famous families going at this point. You've chopped off someone else's head. No. The only way out of a marriage with this man is in a bloody box. But on the other hand, you now have Cromwell, who is, I mean, a reformer. We know that, but also looking to make the best possible alliance for England. And one of the things happening behind the scenes right now is that France and the Holy Roman Empire are beginning to get kind of buddy-buddy. And Cromwell is worried that such a Catholic alliance could alienate England. So to Cromwell, not only for his personal interests, but for the bigger political interests, England should be allying with another Protestant country so there can kind of be this friendship between the Protestant or Reformed nations and the Catholic nations. I think it's really the only option that they have at this point, you know, and he's been so patient, uh, Cromwell's been so patient with Henry. Let's get this thing done. this point um as we were just saying Cromwell was getting quite frustrated with Henry and not just because he wouldn't pick somebody but because at this point what he's effectively doing is putting England in a bit of a sticky uh, situation as you said earlier Kate um 
France and the Holy Roman Empire were getting cosy again, if you've got the military kind of capacity that the Holy Roman Empire has and, and the, the reach that they have, coupled with France, that's, that, that is a recipe for causing some serious religious problems um later on down the line so i think i think it's quite interesting that um cromwell's worries go far beyond we need a spare air and we need to now look at the safety and protecting england um and from from military threats so as you're saying he he, he does go shopping around the more protestant countries but he also needed to find people that had capacity to back England should anything go wrong and that's where we see Cleves become a far more viable option and not just someone out of you know at the backwater in Germany because yes it was smaller than you know the Holy Roman Empire and had a probably a little bit less to offer culturally but I think it was very much an up-and-coming sort of duchy state whatever you want to call it within modern day Germany it also has the advantage of having a ruler who does kind of automatically defer to a king like the king of England. So Henry isn't necessarily doing with, dealing with a Francois who is going to get mad if Henry starts demanding all this stuff of him. Uh, by contrast, when Cromwell and Henry's associates approach the Duke of Cleves with the idea of Henry marrying one of his two eligible daughters, Anne or Amelia, the Duke agrees blindly right away. It's like a, yeah, what time can you take them? We know too that this must have been a little bit more attractive to Henry because I think the girls were so young that maybe he thought that he could influence them in the sense of they might have been raised Lutheran, but maybe Henry can form some kind of like middle of the road sect between you know the the left and the reformed and the more conservative catholics on the right i don't know i just i always thought that was an interesting point that henry maybe thought that he could still get somebody who didn't come with all the baggage of like rome and the pope but still had maybe a little bit of sympathies towards the actual practice of catholicism what well, also I think is the benefit of Cleves, as I was saying earlier, it is not a cultural powerhouse. It does lack that cultural influence of, you know, France, Spain and things like that. So, and I hate saying something like this, but Anne is going to be far more malleable in potential religious affectations than someone who grew up at the French court. So in 1539 in the spring. We've kind of had a year of Henry making all of these proposals to people who have rejected him. So now Cromwell is going full steam ahead with the Cleves thing, and for all of the reasons we've just talked about, this seems like it's going to be the one that works. But we still have to convince Henry. That's that's the thing. We can talk till we're blue in the face about how good this was politically, but it's not going to change Henry's mind. He's still very hung up on is she pretty does she speak all these languages you know is she does she have a good figure like you know she he actually does want all of these things he wants to like his partner as much as he can that's the romantic in him so Cromwell has to do a lot of work to convince Henry that 
even though you could basically have one of these girls tomorrow, we need to actually show that she's, quote, worth it. So he sends a bunch of ambassadors over to Cleves to start talking about potential negotiations, but also um, to, you know, see what the girls are like and see if they can convince Henry that Anne or her sister Amelia are going to be the woman he falls in love with. There is a bit of a wrinkle, though. Remember Anne's father, the Duke of Cleves, who was all set on this match and like, yeah, take her tomorrow. I don't care. We are familiar. Proceed. He died. So by the time that Henry's staff gets there, the new Duke of Cleves is Anne's older brother, William. And William is not as keen on the match as his father was. Just like what happened in France with Francois, the ambassadors ask to see Anne and Amelia, and they're wearing all these this modest clothing. Their faces are covered by veils because it's more modest. William apparently had very strict modesty standards for women at his court, completely different from anything the Englishmen were used to. And so the ambassadors were like, you know, maybe we could see their faces so we can tell our master if they're pretty or not or whatever. And William was completely insulted by this and said to the ambassadors, would you like to see them naked? I mean, it's fair. Like, you've literally just come into their home and you're just like, are, 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 are they worth it? Are they, are they going to be? And you can see for the ambassadors why this is such a difficult job, but equally why it must have been such a difficult job for William to even try and trust these people with his sisters. Well, and, and two, what I thought was an interesting point that Alison Weir made was William knew that his sisters were used to a completely different world than the court of England. I mean, here they are coming in in like these bland, shapeless dresses with their faces covered, and he and his parents have raised them to a certain standard of modesty that is completely not the norm in England. So... Weir points out that maybe he actually did have reservations because he knew that they wouldn't be successful queens. Like, why would I send them to England to fail? Because they're not going to be what the King of England wants. The English, you know, ambassadors and Henry's um, affiliates were certainly taken aback by it because the former Duke of Cleves, Anne's father, had been so for the match. Now suddenly you have Duke William, who totally has Henry's number, and is pushing back with all of these very reasonable concerns. And in hindsight, we're like, you should have just listened to the man because the things he's concerned about are the things that end up going wrong for his sister. And I mean, not wrong to the same extent as the other ones, you know, like somebody like Anne Flynn, for instance, but wrong in the sense that she's embarrassed on the world stage. You know, if Henry's so concerned about looks and wants to see all of these women before because he has such superficial concerns. The Duke being like, you want to see him naked then? Is kind of the first red flag of like, maybe this isn't going to work out if this is all he's concerned about. He's not really concerned about the alliance as much as he's concerned about the actual women. I don't want to give William too much credit though. Like for however noble he sounds for sticking up for his sister's best interests, he's more con he's less concerned with them as people and more concerned with how suitable this alliance is going to be 
Uh, because another thing he brings up is the fact that the King of England probably wants a really impressive dowry for his bride, as we remember from the Catherine of Aragon saga. And there is no way in hell that Cleves will be able to pay what the King of England would probably require for a dowry. And he brings that up right away. He's, he, I, he's not sure how this marriage could ever work just because they cannot afford it. But suddenly Cromwell, like you said, is so invested in this match. And like, finally we have somebody who works politically and that Henry might be convinced to like, we are not losing this one. So in an incredible feat of diplomacy, they actually decide that they're going to take Anne for free or whichever sister for free. There's not going to be any dowry requirement. But like you say, it is that it's very unusual. Because there is still the problem that Henry's not going to agree to the marriage unless he himself can judge whether or not Anne or her sister Amelia, whichever one he prefers, is beautiful enough to pique his interest. We have accounts of the ambassadors being, you know, once they actually got to see Anne and Amelia's faces, saying that they were both really beautiful and they seem really nice and nice and you know modest, just as Henry likes them. But Henry's still very insistent that he wants to see and he wants to make the decision and essentially pick which one he likes better. And that's where Holbein infamously comes in to this whole thing. I think you have to fill the ambassadors at this point because I wouldn't want to be going to be, be the one going back to England and telling both Henry and Cromwell. Henry's bad enough been like, well, I, don't, I don't think she's quite for you. But so they go back to Cromwell's arm and be like, so got this Protestant lady, right? Two two of them maybe. On paper, perfect, but I don't think she's going to like the way she looks. Do you want to go and tell her? No, absolutely not. I'd do what Holbein did as well. Holbein arrives in the spring of 1539 to paint both Anne and her sister. And because we need to kind of speed up this process and get a queen back onto the throne, he actually paints a miniature version first. So the miniature version of Anne's portrait is in the VNA, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, for anyone who wants to go see it. It's absolutely beautiful. It's in this little case um, that is carved to look like a Tudor rose. And it's such an interesting portrait because you know it's the one that Henry saw first and made the decision based on, rather than like the full-length portrait of Anne that we usually see. But Anne is depicted in this very like bulky German fashion. She's wearing a kind of like old-fashioned headdress. We heard about her and her sister having to wear modest clothing before. Here, I think they purposely put her in something that might be a little bit more flattering to her figure because if one of Henry's requirements was to be buxom, Anne certainly has the figure. For all intents and purposes at this point is doing the box ticking exercise. Holbein very cleverly figures out that he needs to flatter her, not because of, you know, that she looks bad or anything. That's not what we're saying, but Obviously, you know, even when you're taking a selfie, you know your best angles. And Holbein, as a portrait painter, was going to do something that flattered Anne, even though they had been expressly told to paint a realistic portrayal of Anne and her sister, both, because Henry was using this to, you know, make an informed decision, right? But what he does is super interesting. So in both the miniature and the full-length version of Anne's portrait, he paints her 
full on. So anything in her face, like, um, like some people said her nose was really long or she had kind of like an elongated jaw. If those were considered to be her, le- you know, least flattering features, you wouldn't be able to tell the way Holbein painted her, which is so smart and so sneaky. But like you said, I can totally understand why he did it because Cromwell was kind of like, all right, let's get this over with. Let's go. And I mean, to be fair to him, he didn't go outside of the brief of the, what he was commissioned to do. He did exactly what he was told to do. I suppose the easiest way to think about it is 16th century airbrushing. It's really sad, though, I think, because the, the, both those portraits of Anne, of Cleves, I think are absolutely beautiful. And to our modern eyes, she doesn't look unattractive. No. At all. So all of the stuff that Henry later says about her and not liking her physically, you can see how, though, he looked at these portraits and fell in love with her. Just She's really beautiful. I mean, you don't see a lot of her, um, you know, because of the headdress and her, her clothes are very distracting, but she is looking away. You know, her eyes are lowered, but she has these beautiful, like, soft lidded eyes and you know her figure is spectacular and you can know that um, we know from later reports that she had this like chestnut blonde hair that you can just imagine kind of coming out from under her headdress or something so you look at it and you're like i don't i don't i don't, I don't see what's i don't see what the strop was and neither did henry because he took one look at that miniature portrait of anne and decided that she was the one that he wanted and not her sister. Which I think, if we're going to be completely honest, the outcome would have potentially been the same. You know, he would he would have been potentially displeased when Amelia arrived as well. So it's not to say it was just Anne. To that end, in the same way that we kind of looked at the other candidates in the first half, I want to just briefly kind of introduce Anne because we've been talking a lot of it a lot about all the stuff that was kind of happening over her head but what was Anne actually like uh, you know what was her dating profile like in all of this I have to say based on the other candidates who Henry was interested in Anne was actually not ideal so she's a bit older than all the other women he was considering she was 23 or 24 at this point which doesn't seem old to us but that's a good you know, what, five years of childbearing age that he had just cut off there. So she is on the older side of the spectrum of women he's considering. She's very sheltered, as we've said multiple times. Not only was her family encouraging more modesty, um, you know, she was very sheltered in the sense that she didn't get out much. There wasn't a lot of big cultural events happening in Cleves, so she basically just sat all day in a room with her mother and her sister and sewed things. And that was her existence. She only spoke one language, which had been one of Henry's requirements, is he wanted somebody cultured who could speak with him in multiple languages and was educated. And Anne could only speak High Dutch, which was a language that Henry didn't even have. So that was going to be an issue from the get-go. It's a bit of a niche one, isn't it? It's like not even French or Latin. It's High right. Dutch. Yeah, it's and it's it's the practical language it's you know the equivalent of like you know someone like Jane Seymour maybe only knowing 
English was seen as maybe not as cultured as somebody like Anne Boleyn who can speak French or Catherine of Aragon who could speak Latin. That shows how educated and cool and modern they were. Whereas somebody like Anne is like, nope, I only just speak the language that I do on a daily basis. There's no ed further education happening here. The other thing was because of their religion, you know, because they were more aligned with reformed ways of thinking, there wasn't a lot of, I say culture, but also like fun happening. Um, they, they didn't like dance or listen to much music or composed music in the court of Cleves. So Anne didn't know any popular dances of the time and she couldn't play any instruments. You know, she was just not somebody who Henry had anything in common with, except for maybe her looks, which clearly checked the box and the political side of things. And I just really enjoy the fact that you've probably got Cromwell and Holbein high-fiving each other in the background somewhere like, nailed it, crushed it. I know, this is the woman who's <laughs> going to steal his heart. I just know it. <laughs> I mean, but you know what? They were, as we've been saying, used to the idea that it's not so much about the woman as it is about the political alliance she brings yeah. with her. So in a perfect world, Henry really wouldn't care. He would just go with it no matter what happened. The only thing that you really have to care about physically for a woman is whether or not she can produce healthy children. And I, I'm sorry for how, like, you know, superficial we sound saying that, but that was a big concern. Yeah. Henry, though, was placing a lot of weight on all the other things. And you can just imagine everyone else in the negotiations being like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I think it's interesting that there was one final attempt that fate made to not have these two come together. And that was in the form of a previous marriage contract that Anne may or may not have been part of. So apparent, apparently when negotiations were going forward, Henry decided he wanted Anne. Um, the people who were researching and drawing up the legal arrangement in all of this came across a previous arrangement that Anne's father had made with the Duke of Lorraine that betrothed Anne to the Duke's son. And keeping in mind here that much like today, marriage is a legal state, but also because this is part of an alliance, there has to be literally like a contract involved and you cannot have anybody who's potentially breaking another contract in order to enter into a contract with you, hence the term pre-contracted. So all of these lawyers had to go investigate whether or not this potential hypothetical marriage alliance between Cleves and Lorraine was actually a thing. And luckily for Cromwell, there was another bullet dodged because there had been no formal pre-contract. It had just been kind of casual negotiations. And Cleves and England were free to enter into their own legal pact. But it's just, you can't help but think, like, the world clearly does not want this to happen. Like, listen to fate, guys. The universe is trying to tell you something. But as we know, it did go ahead, and Anne of Cleves did become the fourth wife of Henry VIII. Their marriage treaty was signed on September 4th, 1539. Everyone in Cromwell's retinue breathed a collective sigh of relief. And I feel like this episode, we haven't necessarily touched on what the women were thinking and feeling at the time, because 
it's just, we don't know. I mean, we can make educated guesses that Anne was pretty overwhelmed by suddenly being courted by the King of England and having her portrait painted. It must have been very stressful, but ultimately we don't know. The only kind of tidbit we get from Anne is when the marriage contract is signed. And it's this very, like, stunted thing she was probably told to say, where she thanks the ambassadors for having arranged this for her, for having even considered her for the marriage, and for having, quote, preferred her to such a marriage that she could wish for no better. It's kind of sad. That I know, I'm, I'm just thinking, oh, honey, like... But you just get the sense of this woman who clearly has no idea what she's about to get into. No. And her brother's concerns for her have been completely thrown out the window because ultimately the political arrangements are more important. And the fact that her brother doesn't have to pay a dowry for her, that ultimately that beats everything. You're you're not going to get any better than that. No, you don't say no to that. So Anne's feelings have been completely disregarded. I mean, she was so sheltered, she might not even have realized what she was getting herself into fully. Because she's very much a a sheep walking into the lion's den at this point, I think. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. On the next episode, Kate and I will discuss what happened to Anna Cleese when she arrived in England, and you're all invited to the wedding. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave a review on your favourite podcast app. Long live the Queens.